New York is known for its theater, and there was quite a lot of drama there today. The lead starts right now. World leaders taking the stage, pushing their priorities for some of the biggest issues of our time, casting Russia's Vladimir Putin as global villain number one, while fighting against waning support for Ukraine. And here in D.C., a moderate House Republican calling his party a, quote, clown show while infighting and name-calling, doing nothing to solve the more immediate problem a federal government set to shut down in just 12 days. Plus, new allegations against celebrity Russell Brand as a new accuser comes forward. Police now looking into the multiple allegations of rape and sexual assault against the disgraced comedian. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. The World Lead dominates the week with so much focus on foreign policy right now at the United Nations. This also comes against major accusations by one democracy, Canada, accusing another democracy, India, of directing an assassination on Canadian sovereign territory. We'll dive into that democracy versus democracy action in a bit. Also ahead, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis coming out swinging against Donald Trump on one of the most contentious election issues for Republican voters. We'll discuss that with one of the biggest names in conservative talk radio, who's also calling some House Republicans hypocrites for their personal behavior. Plus this hour, we're going to talk to the Hollywood A-lister who was in the room and then the bunker in Ukraine when bombs started falling. We'll see how he documented it. But first, a daunting United Nations agenda as the world faces the highest number of violent conflicts at once since the 1940s. First and foremost, of course, Putin's now 18-month-long bloody invasion of Ukraine. This afternoon in New York, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky warned global leaders that Russia's invasion was, quote, not only about Ukraine. CNN's Taylor Tausche is at the UN for us as member nations are attempting to gin up support for Ukraine under the lengthening shadow of war. My fellow leaders, we gather once more at an inflection point in world history. U.S. President Joe Biden urging the United Nations to stand with Ukraine as war with Russia drags on and he battles for more aid money with his Congress. But I ask you this, if we abandon the core principles of the United States to appease an aggressor, can any member state in this body feel confident that they are protected? If we allow Ukraine to be carved up, is the independence of any nation secure? I'd respectfully suggest the answer is no. The message meant to galvanize many war-weary countries nearly 600 days after Russia's invasion that Ukraine could be any of them. Poland, Ukraine's neighbor to the west, knows that all too well. On 1st September 1939, Nazi Germany invited my homeland, Poland. The Second World War broke out. On 17th September 1939, we received a blow from another direction. The Soviet Union also made an onslaught on Poland. This is precisely why we understand the tragedy of Ukraine better than any other country in the world. Poland has been a staunch supporter of Ukraine, providing military aid, transportation and refuge for thousands. Upon Russian aggression on Ukraine, The Poles have once again illustrated that solidarity is not only the great history, but that solidarity lives in us. Ukraine's president, making his first in-person visit to the forum, called on all countries to join the fight. 
We must act united to defeat the aggressor and focus all our capabilities and energy on addressing these challenges. And that the founding principles of the United Nations must be upheld. Weaponization must be restrained. War crimes must be punished. Deported people must come back home. And the occupier must return to their own land. We must be united to make it. And we'll do it. Slava Ukraini. Amid high-profile absences, including that of Russian President Vladimir Putin, growing questions about the relevance and the efficacy of a forum like the United Nations for international cooperation. Poland's president addressed that in his remarks. He says that the UN is much needed and that there is no better system available to deliver assistance and aid to those in need. Jake. And we're going to talk to Poland's president in a second, but, but Kayla, President Biden and President Zelensky are going to meet later this week uh, back here in Washington, D.C. Tell us how that meeting will be different than previous meetings the two have had. Well, unlike previous meetings, this meeting is coming at a time where there really needs to be a sales pitch. President Biden is going to be meeting with Zelensky at the White House on Thursday. The White House has submitted to Congress a request for $24 billion in funding that would help Ukraine defend itself through the end of this calendar year. But Congress isn't sold. Zelensky is going to be on Capitol Hill as well. But unlike previous visits, he's not expected to meet with the entirety of the Republican conference in the House of Representatives. He is expected to meet with congressional leaders. And Jake Sullivan, who's the national security advisor for the Biden administration, has said that in some of his own conversations with congressional leaders that he has gotten some optimism that there would be bipartisan support for some package for Ukraine without saying specifically that there would be support for the full $24 billion, Jake. The reporting right now is that there is not support for more aid for Ukraine, more financial aid for Ukraine among a majority of the House Republicans who obviously have their a slight majority in the House. Now, that doesn't mean that ultimately there won't be aid to Ukraine. They could, they could pass a bill that doesn't have it. It goes to the Senate. They re-add it, and then ultimately it gets added in the conference committee. But it is important for Zelensky to make his case to House Republicans. How difficult is that going to be? It's going to be incredibly difficult for the reasons that you just mentioned, although there is some optimism and some hope on behalf of the, of the administration that there would be some vehicle, some format for aid going forward, even if it's not in the original proposal that Republicans come up with uh, that they feel that they can garner support for in the House. Zelensky has a tall order on Capitol Hill, no doubt, and he seems to know that that is the case. We will see how he manages to galvanize that support if he is able to. Uh, but it's also worth noting, Jake, that there's a very important meeting happening here at the United Nations in New York between Zelensky and the leaders of the United Nations and the Turkish leader about the future of the Black Sea grain deal. Russia has been bombing grain infrastructure and not allowing the passage of grain exports, which is one of the biggest issues for food security around the world. They're hoping to find some sort of a breakthrough, but there the administration says Russia is not going to allow any pathway for that grain. And there's no immediate pathway, at least according to the White House, back into that deal for now.
All right, Kayla Tausche, thank you so much. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky is sitting down with Wolf Blitzer. And you can see that interview on CNN right after the lead in the Situation Room. That's at 6 o'clock Eastern, right here on CNN. Coming up, my one-on-one interview with the President of Poland, Andrzej Duda. He was just warning the world, remember World War II in terms of their not paying attention to Ukraine. Also ahead, words such as stupidity and lunatics and clown car thrown around as House Republicans point fingers at each other for the lack of action to stop the government shutdown in 12 days. Plus, Republican firebrand Congresswoman Lauren Boebert, the vibrant, animated, dare we say, lit behavior, as the kids say, that got her kicked out of a musical, Beetlejuice. Why one conservative radio host says Republicans have no room to continue throwing stones if they keep behaving like this in public. And... New testimony directly contradicting an IRS whistleblower who came forward with claims about the president's son, Hunter Biden. All that coming up. In our politics lead, welcome to Family Feud House Republican Edition. Republican infighting over a spending bill is on track to shut down the federal government in just 12 days. Today, the drama spilling out onto the Capitol steps. This is not uh, conservative Republicanism. This is stupidity. You keep running lunatics, you're going to be in this position. I don't know whether we'll have the votes or not, because I've got a lot of conservative friends who like to beat their chest and thump around going, oh, this isn't pure enough. Those aforementioned, quote, conservative friends and, quote, lunatics are a group of hardline Republicans who are blockading a continuing resolution, that's a spending bill, brokered in part by conservative Florida Congressman Byron Donalds, which would have enough support to make it through the Senate. Right now, my full effort is assembling a large enough coalition to defeat the Donald's continuing resolution, but we're certainly heading in that direction. The outcome of this Republican-on-Republican violence is, of course, impacting you if there ends up being a government shutdown, not to mention, of course, the larger issues of deficit spending and the refusal of Congress to work constructively and in a bipartisan, bicameral fashion to steer the nation towards a sustainable budget path. But, I mean, what am I talking about even? This also impacts House Speaker Kevin McCarthy because those same hardline House Republicans holding up the spending bill right now are holding Speaker McCarthy's job hostage in many ways by threatening to hold a vote to fire him from his speakership. Let's discuss all of this and more with Eric Erickson, conservative radio host. Eric, I know you want Congress to reduce spending. Do you think a government shutdown right now is the best way to do it? I guess I'm asking, are you with Byron Donald's or are you with Matt Gates? You know, listen, I always like government shutdowns. I actually don't oppose them. But the Byron Donald's plan cuts government 8 percent, not for the not for future growth, but actual current spending down by 8 percent, 1 percent for everywhere outside the Defense Department and Department of Veterans Affairs. That's a pretty good deal. You've got hardline Republican Congressman Chip Roy from Texas supporting the plan, the House Freedom Caucus chairman, Scott Perry, supporting the plan. Uh, Those two guys are two of the most conservative members of the House. So uh, you've got a couple, though, who know there's a four-seat majority, so they can kind of nickel and dime it. Uh, I don't know that anything they pass will actually get past the Senate, but they got to come up with something to start the process with the Senate, and this sounds like a pretty good start. So what do you think is motivating the Matt Gaetzes of the world? Uh, Matt Gaetz likes to be Matt Gaetz. He also was the guy who nearly... Uh, forced another vote on the speaker back in January when, when everything was happening. Uh, he wants to look like he can get something out of this because he wants to run for governor of Florida in 2026 against Byron Donald. So he also wants to 
hurt the deal because Byron might run against him. It has more to do with political performance than it does actual practical policy. There's also this big question. Do you think Speaker McCarthy is going to survive until November 2024? You know, he's I'm not a huge fan of his, but he's remarkably been able to pull a lot of rabbits out of hats. Nobody expected Mm -hmm. him to. I mean, he's going to get a deal one way or the other. The problem for guys like Matt Gates is if you can't pick up these Republicans, they start cutting a deal with the Democrats and suddenly your real world spending cuts of of government go away. Let's talk about uh, Republican Congresswoman Lauren Boebert of Colorado. She was recently kicked out of a performance of Beetlejuice, the musical, uh, for vaping uh, and engaging in some R-rated groping with her date. Uh, you recently wrote, quote, we don't get to criticize the left's moral deviances, deviancies when our side props up its own moral deviance. You have no moral authority to challenge the left's sexual standards when you defend the sexual deviancies of the right, unquote. And you're getting some, some pushback from your conservative listeners. Yeah, look, there, there are two camps within the Republican Party. One is you can't complain about the country being in decline when you continue to send people to Washington who participate in the decline. And the other is we just want someone to reliably fight against the left. The problem is so much of the right's argument against the left right now is cultural and it is based on moral. You, you hear a lot of conservatives say what the left is doing, the transgender agenda and the like is, is evil. Well, that's a moral claim. You can't then send people who are publicly flaunting their morality or lack thereof in public and have the public treat you seriously. The other thing is, if Republicans really want people to fight, well, Lauren Boebert barely won her re-election in an off year in Colorado. In 2024, she's going to have President Biden's ground game in Colorado up against her, in addition to the guy who almost beat her last time. So if you're really concerned about winning to fight the left, you've got a very vulnerable congresswoman who might need to go work on her private life instead of publicly revealing it on TV. You've also uh, called out various Republican public officials for Uh, alleged infidelities or not so alleged. Do you think it's possible that that Donald Trump just changed Republican standards when it comes to that issue? Yeah, I I think it made the Republicans comfortable um, behaving like Trump. The the problem here, though, Jake, and I've written this now for about five years, is every Republican who decides to act like Donald Trump winds up losing, ultimately. Uh, People do impressions of Donald Trump, and they're not Trump. Voters like Donald Trump. They don't like these other people. They, they can tolerate one guy, but tolerating every Republican, at, at some point, you have enough Republican voters who say, I'm tired of picking the lesser of two evils. It's still evil. I think I'm going to sit it out. And just as Democrats are seeing non-white voters starting to say, I'm getting nothing for Biden. I may stay home. You're going to have a lot of Christian re- Republican voters say, I'm kind of tired of holding my nose. I think I'm going to stay home. And that hurts their turnout. Eric Erickson, always good to have you on. Thank you so much. Good to see you. Thank you. Coming up next, the new witnesses coming forward in Hunter Biden's tax fraud investigation. They're directly contradicting whistleblowers who have already come forward. We'll talk to one of those whistleblowers. Plus, this major programming note for the lead. Next week, I will be speaking with former Trump White House aide Cassidy Hutchinson, who was chief of staff for Mark Meadows. You remember her testimony before the January 6th committee. And you can see that next Tuesday right here on the lead at 4 o'clock Eastern. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. 
Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support, your sleep number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. In our law and justice lead, new testimony from FBI and IRS officials seems to contradict some of the key claims from an IRS whistleblower who alleges there was political interference in the federal criminal investigation of Hunter Biden's taxes. But this could just as easily be our political lead because the whistleblower's claims play into the Republican narrative that the Hunter Biden investigation was slow walked by a politicized and weaponized Justice Department. We're joined by CNN's Kara Scannell and Sarah Murray to help sort all this out. Kara, first to you. Tell us about this whistleblower, his claims, and who exactly is disputing them. Yeah, so the IRS whistleblower Gary Shapley has testified before the committee saying that at this October 2022 meeting with law enforcement officials, the U.S. attorney overseeing the Hunter Biden investigation, David Weiss, had said that he didn't have ultimate decision-making authority on whether to bring the case and that he had asked for and was denied special counsel status. So now three top law enforcement officials who were in the meeting, including Shapley's supervisor and the head of the FBI office investigating Hunter Biden cast out on that. They're saying that they have no recollection of that happening. The FBI special agent said if in his recollection, if he said that, that he would have remembered it. So pretty strong denials there. Now, Shapley's attorneys saying that Shapley, unlike the others, has handwritten notes from the meeting and that he memorialized those notes in an email to his supervisor. So they're standing by their version of the story, Jake. And and Kara, while FBI and IRS officials are contesting some of the whistleblower IRS agent Gary Shapley's claims, they they are also confirming the things he said, right? Yeah, I mean, they are confirming certain parts of his recollection from that meeting, specifically that the U.S. attorney, David Weiss, said that he had tried to team up with U.S. attorneys in both Washington, D.C. and Los Angeles on potential tax charges, and that neither one of those U.S. attorneys wanted to go along and join this investigation. So that does confirm what Shapley has testified. Now, one of the officials said he didn't take that to mean that Weiss couldn't move forward. It just meant they had to figure out another way to do that, Jake. And Sarah, uh, Attorney General Merrick Garland is due to testify on Capitol Hill tomorrow uh, before the Republican-led House Judiciary Committee at a hearing on what Republicans allege is the politicization and weaponization of the Justice Department under Garland's leadership and under Joe Biden. We are expecting some fireworks. Yeah, I mean, this is an opportunity for Republicans on this committee to get their pound of flesh. Obviously, Jim Jordan has had a lot of complaints about how the Justice Department conducts itself, how the FBI has conducted a number of investigations. And of course, at top of mind is how the Hunter Biden investigation has been conducted. And I think we are going to see fireworks because there's going to be a lot of frustration, especially on the side of House Republicans who are going to want answers to some specific investigations, including this Hunter Biden investigation, that they're just not going to get. They're not going to get the kinds of responses that they want to get out of Attorney General Merrick Garland when there are ongoing investigations, when there are ongoing prosecutions on the table. So uh, I suspect he'll be getting an earful on Capitol Hill tomorrow. And Sarah, uh, meanwhile, House committees are moving full speed ahead on the Republicans' new impeachment inquiry that they voted for, or they didn't vote, rather, uh, McCarthy 
pushed to them uh, aimed at President Joe Biden. Tell us about that. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it sounds like the three committees are still working on a document to outline what exactly the scope of this impeachment inquiry is going to be. But uh, House Oversight's already moving ahead with a hearing that they have scheduled for next week. And House Oversight Chairman James Comer is telling our Annie Grayer that they do plan to move ahead soon with subpoenas for Hunter Biden and James Biden personal bank records. Now, we've sort of seen the committee move around those two individuals, go to banks, go to other associates trying to get this information. This would be the first time when they do issue these subpoenas that they're going directly to members of Joe Biden's family and seeking this kind of banking information, Jake. And Kara, all of this is playing against the backdrop of Hunter Biden's legal team uh, pursuing a more aggressive strategy, both legally and on the public relations front. Yeah, Jake, that's right. I mean, they're they're definitely putting forward a more aggressive strategy, including in some of their dealings with the Hill. Uh, you know, and as we saw yesterday, Biden filed a lawsuit against the IRS saying that his privacy rights were violated when those whistleblowers went forward and disclosed in, disclosed that he was under investigation and then went beyond that in some of their interviews and talked about some of the specific details of his tax return. So they filed that lawsuit. It's one of we, what we may see to be some more aggressive action that they're taking. Jake. All right, Kara Scannell and Sarah Murray, thanks to you. Appreciate it. Another whistleblower mentioned in a new lawsuit from Hunter Biden is going to join me. What does he say about the disputed claims? We'll talk about that next. We're continuing with our law and justice slash politics lead in CNN's new reporting. The testimony from FBI and IRS officials contradicts key claims from IRS whistleblower Gary Shapley, who alleges there was political interference in that federal criminal investigation of Hunter Biden's taxes. This comes the day after Hunter Biden and his attorneys filed a lawsuit against the IRS accusing the agency and its agents of illegally releasing his tax information. I'm joined by another IRS whistleblower who has testified under oath before Congress, IRS Special Agent Joseph Ziegler, who's been on the show before. Thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. So you were here on the lead back on July 20th. That's the day after you and Gary Shapley testified before the House Oversight Committee. Uh, This week, Hunter Biden and his attorneys filed a lawsuit against the IRS claiming that the IRS improperly released Hunter Biden's confidential tax information. And the lawsuit mentions you by name and says, quote, in a July 20th, 2023 interview with Jake Tapper of CNN, Mr. Ziegler alleged for the first time publicly that he had recommended felony and misdemeanor charges for Mr. Biden for tax year 2017. Let's uh, roll that part of the interview. Do you know of criminal charges against Hunter Biden that were not filed, that definitively there is evidence, proof that they should be filed, that he should be facing justice for? So, again, meeting with the attorney, assigned attorneys, we all, and that included Department of Justice tax attorneys, all agreed for felony and misdemeanor tax charges related to 2017, 2018, and 2019. I didn't see that in the charging document that was filed in Delaware. So I want to give you an, uh, an opportunity to respond to something that Hunter Biden's lawsuit says. They say that under oath you had previously stated that you, you only recommended misdemeanor charges for Mr. Biden for tax year 2017, not, as you told, as you told me on my show, related to 2017, 2018, and 2019. Um, so how, help us clear that up. So, Jake, I really appreciate you for having me on the show. Um, so this lawsuit that was filed yesterday, this is, a, this is an effort to silence me and Gary. This is an effort to silence future whistleblowers from coming forward. This is a, an effort to silence IRS people 
from coming forward to Congress. And it, 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 it's just, it's disappointing. It's disappointing and it's disheartening. And what, what I would point everyone to is we followed the law. We followed the whistleblower law. Congress wrote into law 6103 provisions, which protects taxpayer information. That law was written by Congress, and they also added a caveat for whistleblowers. 6103 F5, we presented to the House Ways and Means Committee. They voted that out of the committee, and then now that is public information. You can actually find that information on their website. So that was publicly available information. We came on, I came on to your show, I, I, I discussed information that was within my transcript, and, that, that, and, and I stick by what I said in my transcript to the House Ways and Means Committee. Is, is, so is that um, that you recommended misdemeanor charges for tax year 2017? Or 2017, 2018, 2019. I'm just trying, trying to clear it up. I'm not, I'm not trying to get you. No, I, I appreciate that. It, it, in my testimony to the House Ways and Means Committee, in addition to my testimony in front of the House Oversight Committee, there was a meeting that was held in August of 2022 where the DOJ tax attorneys recommended tax charges for tax years 2017, 2018, and 2019. I'm sorry. They recommended the approval for those charges. Mm -hmm. So essentially, it went to the next step of the review process, and that's what I testified in front of the committee. Um, The lawsuit also says, quote, these agents' putative whistleblower status cannot and does not shield them from their wrongful conduct in making unauthorized public disclosures that are not permitted by the whistleblower process. In fact, a whistleblower is supposed to uncover government misconduct, not the details of that employee's opinion about the alleged wrongdoing of a private person. Um, What's your response to that? So us being whistleblowers, this is bigger than the Hunter Biden investigation. At the end of the day, we came forward under whistleblower status that the Department of Justice was treating taxpayers differently that they were providing preferential treatment to a taxpayer. And this is mal... So the the actual statute says if there's misconduct related to tax information, we have an avenue where we're allowed to come in front of the committee and testify. We've actually received guidance recently from our commissioner that backs up that information. And then I, I know another thing that's out there is that people are like, well, why didn't they blow the whistle up in in their agency. I wrote an email to my leadership, including the commissioner of the IRS. You know what they did to that email? They told me I potentially broke the law and that I should refrain from ever sending anything outside the chain of command. I, I, I mean, if that isn't a blow to any future whistleblower to muzzle them from saying information that you believe is, um, is misconduct, then, then uh, whistleblowers are an important fundamental part of our society. Yeah, I mean, I hear what you're saying. Your argument to this second point by the, by the Hunter Biden lawyers is you were not whistleblowing on a private citizen. You were not whistleblowing on Hunter Biden. You were whistleblowing on, in your view, misconduct by the higher-ups at DOJ and the IRS that were not treating somebody the way uh, anybody else would be treated. Am I, re- am I hearing you correctly? Absolutely. That should concern all of your viewers that if we have a Department of Justice that is treating one taxpayer differently than another taxpayer, that, that, that there is a problem there. And there needs to be mechanisms within Department of Justice that, that prevent that from happening. I mean, there, there, there's, it's just from, from an apolitical standpoint, we can't have that happening in our government. Joe Ziegler, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. I really appreciate you having me. Coming up next, the Hollywood actor who happened to be in Ukraine when Russian bombs first started dropping last year. See his incredible footage. That's next. Historical willingness to be a democratic.
In our popular culture lead, we're following the now sadly familiar story of a popular celebrity's career in the process of crashing and burning because of horrifying sexual assault allegations. This latest instance involves 48-year-old comedian and actor Russell Brown. Americans might remember him for his 2009 hit movie, Forgetting Sarah Marshall. He's been a hit in the UK for decades, first as a stand-up comedian and TV host. These days, uh, by offering wellness advice and anti-establishment sermons on social media, especially on his YouTube channel. Over the weekend, the Times of London and Sunday Times newspapers, along with the British broadcaster Channel 4, uh, published and broadcast the results of a, of a joint investigation in which four women alleged Brand sexually assaulted them in separate instances between the years 2006 and 2013. We're joined now by CNN reporter Anna Stewart. Uh, Anna, tell us more about the accusations. So this was a multi-years investigation by these uh, media outlets. And the allegations made by the four women in the joint investigation include rape, sexual assault, and emotional abuse. And as you said, this was very much at the height of Russell Brand's fame, not just in the UK, where he was already a very famous presenter and comedian, but also in Hollywood, where he was really a rising star at the time. Now, we're going to play you some sound from one of the women who share their experiences. She's called Alice in the documentary. It's not actually her real name. She says she was in a emotionally abusive relationship with Russell Brand, that he sexually assaulted her. And all this, Jake, when she was just 16 years old. Take a listen. Russell engaged in the behaviors of a groomer. Looking back on it, I didn't even know what that was then or what that looked like. Alice goes on to say that Russell Brand helped her lie to her parents so she could sneak out and so on, and essentially says that he groomed her. She wants the UK law to change so that consent is higher than 16 years old. CNN cannot independently confirm those allegations. Uh, Before the documentary actually released on Saturday night, Russell Brand preemptively released a statement denying all the allegations, and we will play that for you now. As I've written about extensively in my books, I was very, very promiscuous. Now, during that time of promiscuity, the relationships I had were absolutely always consensual. The allegations are serious. They are criminal. The women who made these allegations in the joint investigation haven't reported those crimes at this stage to the Met Police. So at this this stage, this isn't being investigated by the police force here. Nana, this is now just... Involved, this is now more than just journalism, uh, journalists. Um, mm-hmm. London's Metropolitan Police are investigating yet an, another allegation, a fifth mm. woman. So the women, the four women in the joint investigation haven't yet reported these crimes to the police in London. However, when we spoke to the Met Police yesterday and asked uh, whether any reports had been made, they didn't name Russell Brand, but they did tell us another separate allegation. A report had been made over the weekend, and this one dates back to 2003. So actually a few years before the dates that the investigation deals with. 2003, a sexual assault in central London, which means there are at least five women now are making these allegations against Russell Brand, but only one at this stage to the police. But the Met Police have said that they've spoken to Channel 4, to the Sunday Times. They want the sources to know how they can report these as crimes to the police, even many years after the date. And Anna, YouTube is doing something right now, taking action against Brand uh, and his YouTube channel. 
Yeah, the fallout continues, really. So YouTube have said that he has violated their creator responsibility policy, which essentially takes note of a creator's behavior both on and off the platform. So they're going to stop Russell Brand for being able essentially to make any money from his YouTube platform. Um, in addition to that, the BBC today has said they are removing some online content uh, involving Russell Brand from their platforms. They say it fell below public expectations. Channel 4 has already removed content involving Russell Brand. Uh, so the fallout really continues. Jake? All right, Anna Stewart, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Turning back to our world lead. Timing is everything. And when actor and director Sean Penn found himself in a bunker with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky on the very first day of Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine, Penn seized the opportunity. More than 18 months after those Russian missiles started falling on Kyiv, there is a new intimate look at the early days of the war and how a rising politician with an unusual backstory became the stoic face of countering Putin's aggression. And joining us now, actor and director Sean Penn, his new documentary, Superpower, which is fantastic. It is now streaming on uh, Paramount+. Plus. So you set out to make a documentary about Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, and his, his unorthodox, unusual rise to power. And then the war broke out. You happened to be there in the bunker at the presidential palace, February 24th, 2022, with Zelensky when he, he transformed in real time from this former TV personality, comedian, could he do this job even to the Churchill of our era, many people think. Let's play a little clip for our viewers. What is it then? What does he want? What is he, what is the... he wants to, he wants, he wants us to be dead. He, he, he hates he, he, he hates us, and we wouldn't know why. He doesn't even look like the same guy today, a year and a half later. You know, he, he became this trans... You, you were there for the transformation. What was that like? Well, in fact, I, it, as you said, we were not intending to make a film that was going to have this narrative because that, this narrative had not at least publicly begun. Other, uh, you know, of course, there'd been the border conflicts since 2014, but Ukraine was, in essence, a country in peace for all those years and still was as we got there in the week that preceded the invasion for what was going to end up being our first meeting with him. We'd started this before COVID, and the travel restrictions were such that we, were, we had to put it off. By the time we were able to get back and, and meet with him face-to-face, -face, it was February, and, of course, the drums had gotten a lot louder mm. by then, and... Um, I, uh, I had said to him during COVID on our, when we met on Zoom that I didn't want, us, want him to commit to participating in our film about him uh, until he'd met me face to face without cameras. So we were shooting everywhere, but not with him. And, and, and so that first meeting ended up on the 23rd, the day before the invasion. And I met this very warm, very bright, very, um, you know, I... I, I there's a in most professions, I think there's a, a wink of kindred spirit that happens. Him having been an actor and me an actor, and and uh, it came out where he said, you know, I felt that he was going to be willing to do more than just participate, but be unguarded. And we went back to the hotel knowing we were going to start shooting the next day, and and try to lay down for 
a little sleep and the rockets started coming in and and then we were I was very surprised to have the president's office called and said he was going to follow through on on meeting with us and it was on that first day of the invasion incredible yeah um Presidents Biden and Zelensky have a, have a complicated relationship. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a new book by Frank Forer um, where Biden is reported as uh, losing his temper with Zelensky. Tell us uh, if, what Zelensky had to say to you about the relationship. For one thing, the Ukrainians and President Zelensky does not want American troops. He says it in the film. Enough have died in enough wars. They want to fight this war, but we've got to help them and, and supply them. And so I could understand the frustration. I have a lot of respect for President Biden, but I think that anybody in the decisive position right now is really failing the aspiration of America. Uh, and, and I really hope that he, he takes far more decisive action. And by that, no more smoke and mirrors about how long it takes to train. All of those things were myths. The maintenance, the, the fueling, the ammunition... It's all myths, and the reality of it is by now they could have had the F-16s long in the air, and it would have saved a lot of lives already lost and that will be lost. So all the things that we are going to eventually do, we should do now. This president should do it. I think it's, a, it's certainly a principal win, and I think it's a political win. So um, I went to Ukraine in April of last year, and I went to a town that had been... There was no military center there. There was no, there was no strategic uh, area there. It was just a town full of people. And the Russians had just destroyed it, just knocked down apartment buildings, just slaughtered people wholesale. You've spent so much time in disaster zones. You visited a woman's destroyed apartment right after. Uh, it was shelled by Russian missiles. She joked with you. She said, I'm not offering any tea. I'm sorry, I'm going to be a rude host. It seems to be a good example of the, of the spirit and resolve of the Ukrainian people. It's a, I, always, I keep describing it as such a moment of time when history sort of plays its role in the future and what we're dreaming that's going to be. And it's why we should all as individuals and as a government, as a country, really tie our wagons to the Ukrainians because it's, 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 the, it's the hope of us rebuilding that aspiration that is our experiment, that is our, that is the country we love in theory. Sean Penn, thank you so much. Congratulations on on the film. It's Superpower. It's on Paramount uh, Plus right now. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Jake. A murder in Canada causing an international uproar. Was the world's largest democracy behind the killing? That's next. And this just in, what Hunter Biden plans to plea after new federal gun charges against him, plus his big request to the judge about how he wants his initial court appearance to go down. Stay with us. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis taking on his Republican primary rival, Donald Trump, telling Republicans, hey, Donald Trump is about to sell you out. These new direct attacks, as DeSantis 
He's trying to claw his way up the political polls in the race for 2024. Plus this hour, the leader of Iran speaking now at the evening session of the United Nations General Assembly. His comments on the same day that Americans once held prisoners unjustly in Iran arrive back on U.S. soil. And leading this hour, those strong allegations from Canada's Justin Trudeau accusing the government of India of carrying out an assassination on Canadian sovereign soil. Trudeau adds his country has credible intelligence to back up the claim. Both nations have now kicked out the other's senior diplomats as relations between these two nations, these two democracies, quickly spiral. CNN's Paula Newton starts off our coverage in Ottawa as this escalating international tit-for-tat plays out between the United States neighbor up north and India, the largest democracy in the world. A brutal murder with all the hallmarks of an assassination. Hardeep Singh Najjar was a controversial Sikh leader gunned down on Canadian streets in June in front of his place of worship. The Canadian government has now said out loud what many had suspected, that there is credible intelligence that the killing took place on the orders of the Indian government. India, the government of India, needs to take this matter with the utmost seriousness. We are doing that. We are not uh, looking to um, provoke or escalate. We are simply laying out the facts as uh, we understand them, and uh, we want to work with the government of India. Trudeau says before going public, he confronted Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi with his accusations last week as Modi hosted Trudeau and other leaders at the G20 summit. They were allegations the Indian government refused to accept. The killing of a Canadian citizen on Canadian soil is an unacceptable violation of our sovereignty. So days later, Trudeau stood in Canada's parliament and let rip his astonishing claim before expelling the head of India's spy agency in Canada. The Indian government responded in kind, expelling a Canadian diplomat and issuing a blunt statement, calling the claims absurd and accusing Canada of sheltering terrorists and extremists. While the Canadian government is leaning on what it describes as credible evidence, the murder remains unsolved. The Royal Canadian Mounted Police tell CNN this remains a priority investigation. In the last weeks, police released photos of a possible getaway car looking to identify mass suspects they describe as heavier set males. The newest disclosures on this murder have been chilling for many in Canada's sick community. Jar's son says he's gratified that any complicity on the part of the Indian government may finally be known. So when we heard that news today, it was a sense of relief that, you know, it's finally coming to the public eyes that, you know, the Indian government is involved. You know, a few things to note here, Jake. Um, Najir was, in fact, labeled a terrorist by the Indian government. They said he was basically trying to break up India because he was a, he was a supporter uh, and a leader in the Sikh separatist movement in India. Now, look, this is a dangerous fault line in Indian politics, but now it has embroiled Canada. And I have to point out, Jake, uh, India, as you well know, is the centerpiece of the Indo-Pacific strategy, right? That uh, counterweight uh, to um, China for the Biden administration. 
Biden was informed of all of this at the G20 uh, before uh, by Trudeau personally, before Trudeau made his accusations public. And that's a good indication that everyone knows the stakes here, uh, not just for Canadian policy, but for U.S. policy as well. All right, Paula Newton in the Canadian capital of Ottawa. Thank you so much. Let's bring in the National Security Council spokesman, John Kirby. Uh, Admiral Kirby, you just heard CNN's Paula Newton reporting on Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau saying the government of India carried out an assassination of a sick community leader in Canada, and India denies it. India calls the accusation absurd. Trudeau says he raised this with President Biden privately before going public. What did Trudeau tell Biden? Well, look, I'm going to protect diplomatic conversations, and I'll leave it at that. But certainly the president is mindful of these serious allegations, and they are very serious. Uh, and we support Canada's efforts to investigate this. We believe a fully transparent, comprehensive investigation is the right approach so that we can all know exactly what happened. And, of course, we encourage India to cooperate with that. So Canada is part of the Five Eyes uh, spying network, right? I mean, the U.S. shares intelligence. Does the United States have the intelligence that Trudeau is using? Do, does the U.S. know what exactly Trudeau is basing these claims on? Well, I think you can understand, Jake, that I'm going to uh, be careful about what I say here to preserve the sanctity of this investigation and, and leave it for Canada to talk about uh, the underpinning information here and what, they're, and what more they're trying to learn. We want to respect that process, and it's their investigation. If it is true, if it can be proven that India's prime minister, Modi, uh, ordered an assassination of an individual on Canadian sovereign land, what repercussions should there be? Well, again, let's not get ahead of where we are. There's an active investigation. We think it uh, needs to be fully uh, transparent and comprehensive. We know the Canadians will work to that end. Again, we urge in India to cooperate uh, with that investigation so that the facts can take investigators uh, where they go. And then once we have the, all that facts and we have conclusions that we can draw from that, uh, you know, then you can start to, to, to look at recommendations or, or, or behaviors you might want to pursue. The New York Times is reporting that the Biden administration and Saudi officials are discussing terms of a mutual defense treaty that would resemble what the U.S. has with two of its closest allies, with Japan and with South Korea, uh, which are democracies, uh, in hopes that we get Saudi Arabia to normalize relations with Israel. Are you able to share any details on that? Uh, well, there's no agreed framework here to working towards normalization. I would just say that we continue to encourage both sides to pursue normalization. We think normalization with Israel is not only good for Israel and the Israeli people, but for the region writ large. And so we think it'll make a, a more integrated, cooperative uh, and stable Middle East. We also have and will continue to work with Saudi Arabia on their defense needs. They have real defense needs. Now, there, there's been an 18-month truce now in Yemen, so that's good. Uh, there hasn't been as much violence coming across cross that border into southern Saudi Arabia. Uh, but we know that Saudi Arabia has legitimate defense needs. We're going to continue to work on them uh, for the future and, you know, seeing what that architecture can look like going forward. Can the United States have a similar defense treaty with Saudi Arabia that it has with democracies such as South Korea and Japan? Saudi Arabia is not a democracy. It has an atrocious human rights record. Uh, the U.N. has said that the Saudi-led war in Yemen, you just noted the ceasefire, but it's resulted in mass killings of civilians, one of the worst man-made humanitarian crises in the world. Plus, of course, American spies have said the killing of Washington Post Jamal Khashoggi, Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi, was ordered specifically by Saudi Crown Prince MBS. Let's just remind our viewers, this is what candidate Biden said about Saudi Arabia on the campaign trail. 
We were going to, in fact, make them pay the price and make them, in fact, the pariah that they are. There's very little social redeeming value of the in the present uh, government in Saudi Arabia. He sounds very different when he talks about Saudi Arabia today. Well, look, there's no question that uh, that Saudi Arabia uh, is a strategic partner, has been for some 80 decades. It's also no question, as the president, as you show, the president hasn't been bashful about expressing our concerns uh, with with Saudi behavior. But this is a strategic partnership. We want to keep moving forward. We need to do that. There have been repercussions uh, for Saudi Arabia. The president declassified the information around the Khashoggi killing. Uh, we, We need to also look at the future of the Middle East and what that needs to look like not just for the Saudi people, the Israeli people, but for the American national security interests. So I don't want to get ahead of where these discussions are, Jake, but these are important discussions, and we're going to continue to have them with our allies and partners there. Because the threat from Iran is not going anywhere. And that's felt by Israel, that's felt by Saudi Arabia, and other of our partners there. I don't know what repercussions you're talking about. I mean, like, take a look at this photo of President Biden from a few days ago with Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. Uh, Biden is shaking, at his hand, shaking his hand, he's smiling at him. Uh, was the president uh, bummed that the photo was made public? This isn't actually not the one I was talking about. There's another one where Biden is looking right at MBS and smiling at him. Is the president bummed that the photo was made public? No, look, the crown prince put his hand out. The president shook it. He shook a lot of hands there at the G20. It was a gathering of, of, uh, uh, of significant world leaders to work on problems that we can all so- try to solve for uh, people around the world, including infrastructure investment, economic, uh, multilateral development banks. Uh, there's a lot that was discussed. Uh, crown prince was a part of those discussions, and, and, uh, and the president was, was happy to have a, a range of discussions with world leaders uh, to all those ends. President Biden in his speech today at the U.N. promised to continue support to Ukraine in its war against Russia. The Pentagon is warning that a government shutdown could disrupt U.S. military aid and training to Ukraine, which could come at a critical time as Ukrainian troops are in the middle of this counteroffensive. How worried are you about a possible shutdown and its impact? A shutdown is not going to be good for anybody. It's going to certainly hurt our economy. Uh, We're going to make sure that it doesn't hurt our national security. I think, as you know, you've lived through shutdowns, Jake, uh, that the national security apparatus continues to operate as it must. And we'll make sure that we can continue to defend uh, our national security interests. We obviously don't want to see any impact on supplemental funding for Ukraine. We've asked for some $24 billion of of defense-related security assistance uh, for Ukraine. And this supplemental, which I remind you, only gets us through the first first quarter of the fiscal year. So it's likely we're going to need to talk to Congress about additional funding going forward. That's important. As the president laid out in the speech today, what happens in Ukraine isn't just affecting Ukraine. It's affecting the European continent. It's, it could potentially affect uh, even in greater ways our own national security. So it's important that we rally the international community and members of Congress to continue to support Ukraine. John Kirby, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate it. Yes, sir. Let's turn now to CNN International Diplomatic Editor uh, Nick Robertson. Nick, let's start with What uh, Mr. Kirby just told me about what's happening in Canada with Trudeau saying the government of India carried out this assassination of a sick community leader. Kirby said he didn't want to comment on diplomatic relations. Biden did reference this in his speech before the U.N. today. Yeah, he did. Um, You raised the point of the five eyes, the countries, United States, Canada, the U.K., Australia, 
all sharing intelligence. What one sees, the other sees. Five eyes, that's how it works. So that's it's, it's mutual uh, understanding and therefore a mutual effort against the same threat. And it was interesting that President Biden did say in his speech today when he was talking about the values of human rights, he said the values of human rights essentially can't be ignored whether they're in Xinjiang or Toronto. I mean, when does when do people start talking about human rights in Toronto? It seemed to me to be, he gets what's going on. It seems we also know that the British Prime Minister as well has, has, has talked to the Canadians and he is also concerned about the allegations that they're making about India. So it, it, it does seem to me that John Kirby not able to speak publicly about what the Five Eyes shares, but I think we can understand that President Biden is aware. Yeah, it seems to me that Trudeau wouldn't have said it publicly unless he was pretty clear and sure of the charge and that President Biden uh, wouldn't have said that uh, if he hadn't been at least a little familiar with the intelligence. What do you make of what Kirby said about the Biden administration and Saudi officials discussing terms of a mutual defense treaty? Yeah, look, I, I, you know, I think he said it all there. Um, the 18 months of ceasefire in Yemen, that's a positive, right? You try to point out that MBS was actually defense minister at the time who precipitated that war back in 2015, um, very costly in terms of lives. So again, an indication there from Kirby that this is something that's important. We'll work with uh, Saudi Arabia on their concerns. And look, the United States, the reality here is the United States is still the number one preferred choice for Saudi Arabia for security. Security. They want a lot. And this is really seen as a time by MBS when he can get a good bargain from President Biden. President Biden, he assumes, wants some sort of legacy. And that would be some sort of Middle East peace would be good. And, and it does seem that MBS um, sees this moment in time as an opportunity that he needs as well, because he needs uh, that pat on the back, if you will, for the United States, their support. He needs to show his country because his father's not well and he will soon be king one day, that he can deal with the United States effectively for the security of Saudi Arabia. So there's a mutual interest there. And I think uh, John Kirby was, re was reflecting that interest. I think his language really spoke to the fact that the days of the President Biden's inaugural, inaugural speech and, and, and what he said about Saudi Arabia then being a prior, that right. was then. Now it's different. Yeah, Nick Robertson, thanks so much. In just a few minutes, Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky will be on uh, the Situation Room with Wolf Litzer, and you can see that interview right after the lead. Could the war in Ukraine quickly spill over into NATO territory? I'm going to ask the president of Poland about how worried he is about being next, plus what Hunter Biden is asking a judge as he makes plans to appear in court soon on federal gun charges, and Donald Trump's pro-union play will play his message to auto workers on strike in the battle around state of Michigan. Stay with us. We are back with our world leaders. Congress prepares to welcome Ukrainian President Zelensky to D.C. later this week to discuss his need for aid for Ukraine, further aid. Zelensky and President Biden were not the only world leaders pushing for continued Western support for the war-ravaged country at the U.N. today. In fact, the president of Poland, whose nation borders Ukraine, also stressed the importance of solidarity. Joining us now, the president of Poland, Andrzej Duda, who is at the United Nations Conference in New York City. President Duda, while you and I are speaking, Russia is attacking Ukraine. Just today, Russia launched strikes on Lviv, which is close to Poland's border with Ukraine. You've spoken at length about Putin's imperial ambitions not stopping with Ukraine. 
How worried are you that a NATO country could be next, including Poland? Of course, we are very well aware that there is a threat. I keep reminding all the time that in 2008, when Russians invaded Georgia, the Polish president back then, Lech Kaczynski, said in Tbilisi that Russian imperialism was reborn and that unless we stop Russia, unless the countries of the West, the democratic countries, stop Russia, then probably we will see attacks on Ukraine, then perhaps uh, on the Baltic states, and then, as he said, even uh, on my country, Poland. These words are as valid as they were. Uh, in 2014, Putin uh, attacked Ukraine. In 2022, on the 24th of February, Russia um, invaded Ukraine. It was a full-scale invasion, and today it occupies a huge part of its territory. So the war is going on all the time. If somebody thinks that it will be possible to stop the imperial ambitions of Putin, of Russia, to, throw, to freeze this conflict, then this person is mistaken. Russia can be stopped only if it is defeated, and it will be defeated when Ukraine pushes out the Russian uh, army from the occupied territories, thanks to the help of the United States, thanks to the help of the West, and when it regains control over its internationally recognized borders. Only then we will be able to say that Russian imperialism was uh, really defeated and uh, successfully pushed back that the order has been restored. Right now, it is questionable that a majority of Republicans in the U.S. House of Representatives support more aid to Ukraine. What is your message to House Republicans who do not support more aid to Ukraine? I would like to be able to say very much, not only to the members of the Congress, members of the Republican Party, but generally to the politicians in the United States, to all our friends here in the United States of America, to the citizens of the United States of America, if we want no, if you want there to be no war in the world, which is conducted by Russia, if we want to make sure that the uh, military threat is not increasing, then we should make an effort and rescue Ukraine. We have to save Ukraine. We need to help Ukrainians to defend themselves. This is our obligation today vis-a-vis -vis the free world, to listen to them, to help them, and we have to take effort, make effort to do that. As I said, Ukraine must regain control over its internationally recognized borders, because as a matter of fact, that will mean victory. It is not about um, entering Russian territories. It is about making sure that Russia is not able legally to forcefully shift the borders in Europe so that it is not able to occupy the lands of an independent and sovereign European country. This is the basic issue. This is the guarantee of the peace in the future, also for the United States of America. One of the issues that many House Republicans are worried about is corruption in Ukraine. President Zelensky is attempting to root out corruption in his government. Just yesterday, all six of Ukraine's defense uh, deputy ministers were dismissed. Given those corruption issues, have you talked to President Zelensky 
about corruption, are you confident that the money Poland is giving to Ukraine is being spent wisely? Of course, this is a big problem, and it is not a problem of Ukraine uh, that it is facing only today. This is a problem which has existed in Ukraine for many years, one can say for tens of years. And it is my personal belief that Volodymyr Zelensky, when only he was elected to the office of the president of Ukraine, started right away to fight against it. But the situation is indeed extremely difficult, and it is going to be a very difficult process. It is not easy to defeat corruption. But referring to the previous question, let everyone look at the history. Uh, whenever there was war in Europe, whenever that war was growing, whenever it was spilling over uh, Europe, the United States sooner or later had to intervene to put an end to that war. Unfortunately, if the war spilled over too much, the American soldiers were coming. I believe nobody wants to see that today. This war, the Russian aggression against Ukraine has to be stopped. It has to be thwarted, nipped in the bat, because that will be the guarantee of uh, peace for future. We need to help Ukraine. We need to help Ukraine to push Russians away from its territory. May they come back to their soil. That is number one. And number two, Ukraine has to be supported in its reforms, in its fight against corruption. This is extremely important today. The president of Poland, Andrzej Duda, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you very much. Coming up, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis telling Republican voters Donald Trump's about to sell you out. What's the issue that has him on the attack? But first, what Hunter Biden is asking from a judge to maybe, maybe avoid a media circus at an upcoming court appearance. Stay with us. Just into CNN, Hunter Biden plans to plead not guilty to federal gun charges, according to a new court filing. CNN's Kara Scannell broke that reporting. She joins me now. Kara, what does the court filing say, and when could we see Hunter Biden actually appear in court? Hunter Biden's attorneys are asking for a remote first appearance on those felony gun charges, saying that he's not asking for special treatment and that some other defendants in the District of Delaware have appeared remotely. Uh, But they're saying that they don't need a lot of time for him to enter a plea of not guilty. You know, they also note that Hunter Biden had previously appeared in court when his plea deal fell apart on those tax misdemeanor charges. And at the time, he was fingerprinted and had his mugshot taken. So they're saying that he doesn't need to be processed. And part of the argument here is also that since Biden is protected by the Secret Service, that requires a lot more uh, protections, more security parameters have to go into place and require local law enforcement to bring him in for a hearing that will be relatively brief. Uh, Ultimately, this is up for the judge. Now, the prosecutors oppose this. Their filing is due tomorrow. And then the judge will decide when Biden will have his first arraignment on these gun charges, whether it's remotely or in person, and Biden's going to plead not guilty to those charges, Jake. All right, Kara Scannell, thank you so much. Turning now to our 2024 lead, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is directly targeting his rival, Republican frontrunner Donald Trump, after Trump called Florida's six-week abortion ban that DeSantis signed into law a terrible mistake. time he did a deal with Democrats, whether it was on budget, whether it was on the Criminal Justice First Step Act, Uh, they ended up taking him to the cleaners. He's going to make the Democrats happy with respect to right to life. I think all pro-lifers should know uh, that he's he's preparing to sell you out. 
Let's discuss with our panel. Doug, it's such a weird, it's such a weird debate because there is nobody other than maybe Mitch McConnell more responsible for the overturning of Roe v. Wade than Donald Trump. And yet, on the other hand, Governor DeSantis is, is accurately pointing out that Donald Trump is criticizing you know, the, the laws that now, because of Donald Trump's actions, states are passing that make abortion essentially all but illegal. There's a lot to unpack there, right, in one, <laughs> in one question. And first, Ron DeSantis actually supported the first version of the first step back, voted for it. He was a member of Congress then, which he's now trying to criticize Trump with. But with abortion, it becomes very complicated. It's always been a complicated issue. It's become more complicated for Republicans uh, since the Dobbs decision. Donald Trump often said, only I can do this or only I can do that, as you point out. It's either him or Mitch McConnell who can say, only I was able to overturn Dobbs. But what we see is where DeSantis has tried to move to the right of Trump on issue after issue and not really been able to. This is an area where he might be able to ultimately see where voters are reacting uh, when it comes to a six-week ban versus maybe 12 or 15 isn't where the rest of the country is. You know, it's a complicated issue for Republicans, but with regard to Donald Trump, it's not. As you said, he's responsible for Roe v. Wade being overturned other than the justices who actually rendered the decision. And he just a few months ago was bragging about having killed Roe v. Wade. What this is, though, Ron DeSantis actually, I mean, Donald Trump is playing to a general audience. General right, he's already election moved on audience. to the general election, right. And so DeSantis actually was helping him in a general election context. That's a fight that uh, Trump would love to have, right? Because he knows this is the kind of manipulation we saw in 2016. Now in 2024, he actually has a record like he did in 2020. And we have to hold him accountable. It's not complicated. This is the kind of distortion and abuse, frankly, of, you know, the media and the airwaves that we've seen from Donald Trump. He's trying to have it both ways. And the truth is nobody trusts Donald Trump to cut any kind of deal with anybody. And I can just say as a Democrat, I'm not happy if that's what Ron DeSantis wanted to hear. You're not DeSantis? You're not happy that what? He said, DeSantis said, you know, this is going to make Democrats so happy. No, I'm not happy. I'm not happy to see Donald Trump again you know, more lies, more um, misdirection that unfortunately some people may buy. Um, and Doug, let's turn uh, to another uh, matter of the Trump campaign, a new radio ad uh, the Trump campaign is running in Detroit and Toledo, mm-hmm. uh, where auto workers are talking about the auto workers strike. Donald Trump calls them great Americans and has always had their backs from tax cuts for their families to playing hardball with China. Biden, he's turned his back on the auto workers by cutting a deal that uses American tax dollars to help fund China's electric car business. It's not entirely accurate there. The, the, <laughs> the electric car business, is the, it's an American electric car business. It's yeah. true that the batteries are made in China, yeah. and maybe that's something that American manufacturing should think about. Uh, but it, what's interesting about it is obviously Trump making a direct play for the for union voters, which is not something that Republicans normally have done. No, we see, we've already seen a real split with that, with Tim Scott, who's gone into the more traditional route and done so loudly. So the, the one time I talked to Donald Trump's uh, campaign, I emailed a friend who I'd known for a long, long time. This will tell you how much our politics have changed. <laughs> I said, you know, no Democrat has gone to Flint, Michigan yet and talked about uh, the groundwater, the, the drinking water there. If Donald Trump were the first, he would explode this campaign. It obviously never happened. But this is sort of a version of that. He's going to places where Republicans don't typically do so, is going to do it presumably when Republicans are at their most 
sh- the biggest shrine that Republicans have, the Reagan Library, and, and in a debate to say, I'm doing something different and ultimately I'm for you. That, that message that he used effectively against Hillary Clinton, he's trying to do so here. Again, it's not what Republicans may want to hear, right. but he's making a different argument. But again, it's a general election yeah. argument, right? Because the truth is, and I think Biden would love to have this conversation in a general election because the very CEOs that the union is trying to hold accountable in, in their negotiating got massive tax breaks from the Trump tax cut. So the irony of him going back to workers and saying, I'm for you, when he didn't do a thing for him, for them, when he was president, I actually went back and looked at all the fact checks from his various trips to Michigan during 2020, where he basically, once again, just lied about his record. Remember, he said he was going to bring manufacturing back and he was going to save plants when actually during his his time in office, we lost uh, factories, uh, GM factory, frankly, in Michigan. So Sure, he's going to do it. Doesn't mean he's going to tell the truth. Well, what's interesting about it is that more than 70 percent of the American people, according to a Gallup poll, are with the striking auto workers. And, and a majority of the country is with the striking actors and writers in Hollywood. I mean, there is a I don't want to call it populist because that word's getting so yeah. um, stigmatized. But there, there is a real pro worker sentiment in the country right now. And yet Trump is doing this, which I think is smart politics. Mm-hmm. You have Nikki Haley asked about it. She says, I'm from a right to work state. I chase out the union. So you have Tim Scott saying, look at what Reagan did with the air traffic controllers. If people go on strike, you should fire them. I mean, it feels like Trump. And again, you don't have to believe him. But just in terms of the politics of it, it does seem more on the pulse of the American people. Well, and Trump's not alone here. We've we've seen... um J.D. Vance uh, speak out on this as well. I think we'll see other Republican House members and Senate members, too. But there is also a risk here, and that's as these things go on, uh, often where the blame happens can shift. As House Republicans have learned over over the years, when you shut down the government, the country may think it's fine for a while, but the longer it goes on, they start to question some of those policies. If we have this strike go on uh, for a long time, I think families are going to be in a real bind here, and we'll see if they turn on this or not. Speaking at a closed-door fundraiser in a packed Broadway theater yesterday, Karen, yeah. uh, President Biden had sharp words for Donald Trump. He said, quote, let there be no question Donald Trump and his MAGA Republicans are de- determined to destroy American democracy. He said in 2024, democracy is on the ballot once again. I know he really uh, believes that. The message worked in 2020. Do you think it's going to be as resonant this year uh, or next thou- year, rather? A thousand percent, because look at what just happened in Ohio when reproductive freedom was on the ballot. It won particularly for women in this country, that is democracy. If we're not treated as full citizens in a democracy, absolutely. The attacks on voting rights and other freedoms and the fundamental shifts that this country is undergoing that Joe Biden's trying to talk about. Doug and Karen, thanks so much for being here. Appreciate it. The next big wave up next, what's behind a new surge in migrant crossings at the U.S. southern border? In our national lead, thousands of migrants are arriving at the U.S.-Mexico border in what officials are warning as the next big wave. As a Homeland Security official says, as of Monday, U.S. Border Patrol has been apprehending more than 8,000 migrants a day. That's double the amount of what we saw in mid-May when the Trump-era COVID restriction known as Title 42 was lifted. As CNN's Ed Lavendera reports for us now, this new surge of migrant crossings is once again putting a strain on border towns such as El Paso, Texas. Growing lines of migrants cross between official border checkpoints waiting to turn themselves into U.S. border authorities in El Paso. It's hard, this mother says, carrying a toddler she struggles to feed. This man holds a sign begging for work to buy a bus ticket. 
please support me to complete my ticket. There's a growing number of migrants crossing into the United States, raising concerns this could be the early stages of a renewed surge of illegal immigration. In recent days, a crush of people flooded into Mexico's southern border and continued north. Large migrant groups have been spotted on trains heading to the U.S. southern border. In El Paso, city officials say they've helped more than 4,000 migrants in the last week. As they come in, they're processing at that table. Mm. John Martin runs a network of local shelters and says they're already over capacity. Just a few days ago, we were up at 170 here at this location for a facility that comfortably should be no more than 120. Daily encounters in El Paso are about 1,200 per day. Most migrant shelters are full, some migrants are sleeping outside, but the city is using hotels like this one to handle the overflow. It's where we met Dorcas Escobedo and Neri Tiño, the couple left Guatemala a year ago. They're, they're telling me that uh, they spent about a month in Juarez waiting to cross legally through the proper channels, but they started noticing many other people starting to cross illegally across the river and turning themselves in, so they decided to do the same thing. The crisis is not limited to El Paso. We've transported hundreds of people to the airport. A surge in San Diego has volunteers dealing with thousands of migrants. Many, like this 24-year-old from Ecuador, are on their way to family already inside the country. He says he wants what every person comes here to do, to work and live here, breathe new air. A Homeland Security official tells CNN 8,000 migrants, including families, were apprehended Monday on the U.S. southern border. That number higher than the 3,500 per day average in May, right after Title 42 COVID restrictions ended. But in El Paso, this migrant surge doesn't rival those during Title 42, at least not yet. The only thing that I can affirmatively say, we're starting to see the larger number of peoples, and I think it should be heeded as a warning. And Jake, the question now is, and many people are trying to figure this out, is this an, an anomaly, a short-lived surge, or is this a sign of a bigger problem that will continue to grow for months at a time? Here at this uh, border checkpoint, this Border Patrol agent just loaded up this van uh, with women and children. They will then be taken to uh, the processing center, and if they are not immediately expelled, they will be given uh, paperwork to show up at a court date uh, sometime down the road, and they move into other parts of the country. And the reasons for, Jake, why this is happening is not exactly clear at this point. We've spent all day uh, speaking with migrants here, and there's a variety of reasons as to why migrants are choosing to cross like this now in a way that we haven't seen since the end of Title 42. A lot of it is disinformation. A lot of it is desperation, just tired of waiting on the other side. Jake? I love Darren, El Paso, Texas. Thanks so much. The family so glamorous, they were part of the plot of Titanic, and now in HBO's The Gilded Age. A member of another storied New York family knows all about them. Anderson Cooper will join me next, talking about the Astors and his new book, The Astors. Stay with us. In our pop culture lead, New York, the most populous city in the U.S., and everywhere you go, you can't ignore one name that pops up again and again. Astor, the Astor Place Theater, the Waldorf Astoria Hotel, Astor Hall in the New York Public Library. Our own Anderson Cooper tells the story of America's first multimillionaire and his family in his new book, Aster, The Rise and Fall of an American Fortune, which is out today. Congratulations. Thank you. So many nice notices and 
the Washington Post and the Chicago Tribune. Your book begins with the day you met what would be the last of the Astors, Brooke Astor. You were 13. You were eating at Mortimer's with your brother and your mom. Tell us about that first meeting and then, more importantly, about the next time you met her. So yeah, she was the sort of queen of New York society at the time. She had a foundation that had been started by Vincent Astor, her husband, who she was married to in five and a half very unhappy years. But he, she inherited his, the entire Astor fortune, and she devoted it to, uh, to giving back to, to New York, which is the, the, the city which gave the Astors their, their fortune because they owned much of the land upon which New York uh, was built. I was 13. I didn't know who the Astors were. I was eating lunch with my mom at this restaurant called Mortimer's, which was like this Upper East Side Society restaurant. There was always like a crazy circus of a show. And Brooke Astor walks in, and I thought to myself, who is this little old lady in a very big fur coat? Not realizing that the Astor fortune was actually created by beaver fur initially in the <laughs> 1700s with John Jacob Astor and the bloody trade of beaver pelts. Uh, that's how he made his millions initially, and then he funneled it into New York real estate, owning much of the land that New York was built on, as I said. Um, my mom, it turned out, didn't like Brooke Astor, and I could tell that instantly when Brooke Astor came over and was introduced to me. And, and I met her a couple times over the years, and she, you know, there was, but there was a cons- more consequential meeting when I was working as a waiter at this restaurant years later when I was 17, and we passed each other, and I said, hello, Mrs. Astor. And she looked at me and almost smiled. And then she saw me. I was in my waiter outfit. And she didn't recognize me as Gloria Vanderbilt's son. She just thought I was recognized me as a waiter. And she looked basically right through me. And she started to smile when I said her name. And she looked up. And then, like, there was a slight curl to smile. And then she saw I was the waiter. And she it just it changed the expression. And it was a... For me, it was an insignificant moment, and maybe she was just having a bad day, so I don't mean to make her sound to, to be terrible because she did remarkable things for the city. Um, but to me, it was a really important moment because it was sort of a reminder of something which I already knew, which was the privilege that I had of being, you know, when I was in the company of my mother, I was treated one way. When I was waiting tables, I was treated very differently by many of the people who I knew or had met who just didn't recognize me as their waiter. And it made me really think about you know, what side of the table I wanted to be on or if I wanted to be at those tables at all, which I chose not to be. It's just fascinating. Astor family members have also infiltrated Hollywood, whether it's uh, Mary Astor adopting the surname as part of her stage life or a real-life Astor being portrayed on the big screen. You mentioned uh, the times Jack Astor has been portrayed in movies uh, depicting the Titanic shipwreck, including in James Cameron's film. Uh, Let's take a quick look at that. Hey, Astor. Well, hello, Molly. Nice to see you. JJ, Madeline, I'd like you to meet Jack Dawson. How do you do? Pleasure. Hello, Jack. Are you of the Boston Dawsons? No, the Chippewa Falls Dawsons, actually. Oh, yes. For a while. Now, this is true, right? Jack Astor was, in fact, aboard the Titanic and died in that shipwreck. That's correct. He was probably the wealthiest person on a ship with many wealthy people. His, his wife, his new wife, his second wife, uh, Madeline, survived the Titanic. She was pregnant uh, with a child that he didn't know was a boy at the time, but turned out to be a boy. Um, and the entire fortune, uh, the Jack Astor's fortune, w- was, was passed on to Vincent Astor, except for a few million dollars that went to his new wife uh, and, uh, and his unborn child. But yeah, but yeah, when, you know, in many of the headlines of the Titanic, Jack Astor's name was on there. And in fact, he was one of the bodies that was recovered uh, and he was found with a pocket watch, which 
uh, was then remained in the Astor family, um, ultimately given to Brooke Astor's son. It's a, it's a book full of just incredible details uh, like that. Anderson Cooper's new book, Astor, The Rise and Call of an American Fortune, is out today. Get your copy. It's great reading. Anderson, congratulations again. Thanks, Jake. Appreciate it. This programming note, one week from today, I'm going to talk to Cassidy Hutchinson. She was an aide to Trump's chief of staff, uh, Mark Meadows. And you can see that next Tuesday at 4 o'clock Eastern, right here on The Lead. And next tonight, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is going to talk to Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. That's just moments away. I'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.